It's good to be with you here this morning. Uh, we, we've been walking through this series called His Story, the story of the Bible. And, and today, this morning, we're going to be looking at the pinnacle of this story. The previous 46 lessons have all been pointing toward this moment of the death of Jesus and next week and his resurrection. Uh, so as we look at this this morning, we're going to be seeing what, what every prophecy, every promise, every other story has been pointing toward. And, and to remind us uh, how we got here, if you haven't been with us for a while, you can refresh your memory. If you've been here, you can show off all the cool motions you've been learning. And this helps us remember this, this story and how it all fits together to tell one story. So can you do this with me? And again, if you're getting good, try to do it without looking. You can look at me. Look at my handsome, warm face from getting out of my garage this morning. All right, you ready? We've got God, creation, fall, promise, flood, tower, patriarchs, exodus, law, conquest, Judges, kingdom, divided, exile, return, silence, and Jesus. You got it. Very good. How many did it without looking at all? Awesome. All right. Great teacher, Justin. All right, here we go. Good thing I'm not getting paid by the hand raise. Um, And if there's anything that I learned growing up, this is a shot of me and my younger two siblings. My brother's not here this morning. It's always good if he's not here, if I'm going to show him in his boxer shorts. Um... Uh, one thing I learned as a sibling, when you're, if you're going to get in trouble, okay, mom and dad uh, come down on you for doing something, well, what, the lesson I learned is you don't actually have to be perfect, you just have to be better than one of them, right? That, that's the whole thing, like, yes, I shoved her, but she started it, right? So it's really on her, and yeah, you know, I shouldn't have said that, but Jeremy said the D word, right? It was always, Jeremy was always the potty mouth of the family, right? Running around his boxer shorts, cussing, he was just a terrible kid. Um, and and it's just, all you had to do was be on the top of the heap, so here's the three of us in a heap, and, and I was always the most Christ-like, so I was on the bottom, right? The, the humblest of the, and so you're always, you're blame shifting, right? Well, well, she started it, but he said this, and she did that. And all you needed to do, you didn't need to prove that you were perfect, just that you were better than one of the other two in hopes that they would take your punishment, that they would receive the blame for whatever was done. And we see in this story this morning, just a ton of blame shifting going on. In Jesus' trial and in his crucifixion, there's the, the religious leader saying, oh, it was Judas, right? The blood's on you, Judas. We're not taking that money back, right? This is, this is your responsibility. We see Pilate. What's he do? He washes his hands and says, I'm not the one that's killing Jesus here. It's you. It's on you, the Jewish people. No one wants to take the blame. Everyone wants to try to be innocent. What does that remind us of? The first story back in the garden. God comes down and says, Adam, what have you done? He goes, it's not me, it's that woman that you gave me, right? I love how he throws God in. You gave her to me. What did you expect to happen, God? And then he looks at the woman and says, what have you done? Oh, it's not me, it's the serpent. He deceived. Everybody's blame shifting. Why? Because no one wants to take the blame. Everybody wants to prove their innocence. But the reality is, there's only one man who's ever walked on planet Earth for the entire span of their life and been perfectly innocent. And the rest of us, I might be better or worse than my sibling, but ultimately, in the eyes of God, I'm guilty. And I want us to start the story this morning with the end of the story, and then we'll work our way back toward it. There's this centurion kneeling at the foot of the cross. Jesus is dead. And he says these words. When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man 
was innocent. He has seen what's happened. He's seen this horrific scene. And in his takeaway is, is worship. And to say Jesus was who he claimed he was. He had done nothing wrong. He is the Son of God. And the ultimate twist of irony, the only one in this story who's truly innocent, the only one who's ever lived that was truly innocent, is killed in the place of everybody else in the story who is guilty. I want to look this morning at Jesus' illegal trial, and we'll see his substitution for Barabbas and then his crucifixion. So let's, let's walk through this. First of all, Jesus is a legal trial. Now, there was this group of leaders. We've been calling them the Sanhedrin, right? This was kind of like the Jewish Supreme Court. They ruled politically and they ruled religiously. They are very powerful. There's really 71 guys, 70 leaders who are sitting on this seat, and then the one high priest. So 71 of these guys, and they hate Jesus. They want him dead. Why? Well, many reasons. First of all, he's stolen their attention. They're mad that all these crowds have been following Jesus instead of, instead of paying attention to them. They're the ones that everybody's supposed to be following and listening to. Number two, he, they've ex- he's exposed their hypocrisy. They say one thing, but he says you really live another way. He says he condemned their traditions. Remember, Jesus said, yeah, outwardly you worship me, but inwardly your hearts are corrupt, and God cares about what's on the inside, not what's on the outside. Nobody likes being said that they're wrong, that they're guilty. And finally, he claimed to be God. And they did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the Son of God who he claimed to be. And because of these reasons, they wanted Jesus dead. Wanted him dead. But they knew that they couldn't arrest him in the middle of the day, right? They, they saw Palm Sunday. Everyone waving the branches, right? Celebrating Jesus. They said, man, this crowd will go ham on us. They will riot if they see us try to arrest Jesus. So what do they do? They get bailed out by Judas, one of his own followers, who betrays Jesus. He says, Thursday night, he goes, I know where Jesus will be. And under the cover of darkness, Judas leads a thousand people into the garden and betrays his master with a kiss. He's turned over and arrested. Now what's funny is everyone in this story who tries to condemn Jesus in the process of accusing him, show themselves to be ones who are guilty. And not only, not only are the accusations that are made about Jesus false, but the way they go about the ac- making the accusations is totally illegal. And you'll see, and, and I put in, in your sermon notes a link to a website that shows this, there are over 20 legal violations the Sanhedrin commit just in this process. They're not supposed to have court in the middle of the night. They're supposed to have the defense make a case before any accusations are formally made. They're supposed to wait 24 hours for results. I mean, there's all these things that they're just totally flying in the face of. False accusations. Illegal trial. And, and also in your notes, I gave you kind of a timeline of these six stops that Jesus makes along the way of this illegal trial. And I don't have time to get into them uh, this morning. But he goes and he sees these different people and it culminates uh, with Pilate. Look, at, look with me in Luke 23. It says this, now the, the entire council, this is the Sanhedrin, right? The 71 guys we were talking about. They took Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor. Now, what is going on here is the Jewish people are not allowed to kill. John 18 tells us that. And they don't want just Jesus to go to jail. They want him to die. So they take him to the Roman governor, the governor of Judea, Pilate, Pontius Pilate, because it's only the Romans that have the power, have the authority to kill. So they come to Pilate. 
And they accused Jesus. And look at what they accused him of. They began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. False claim number one. Okay, they're saying he's trying to overthrow the Roman government. But what did we see? Jesus is not doing that at all. They wanted Jesus to overthrow the Romans. But he said, that's not why I've come. I've come to lay my life down for you. And then they claim that he's opposing payment of taxes. But if you know the story, what did Jesus say when they tried to catch him in that lie? He said, no, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. He, he was for taxes, right? Some of us are like, dang it. And then the final claim is he claims to be the Messiah. Now, that, that one is true. He did claim to be the Messiah, but he was the Messiah. So it was not a lie. And when Pilate, he looks at these things, they, they know. I mean, the Romans will not, will not condemn Jesus, will not kill Jesus for claiming to be the Jewish Messiah. They don't care about the religious side of things. They can't find any grounds for the Romans to crucify him. Jesus is the only man who's ever lived a perfect life, broken a law. He's the only one who's never committed a sin against another person. So, of course, they have no grounds to legitimately kill him. But Pilate, he sees this too, and so he comes three different times. He tells the people, I've seen nothing wrong. This dude hasn't done anything wrong. There's no grounds for me to kill him. And look at what he says in Luke 23. He says a third time, why? What evil has he done? I've found no, in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish him and release him. He says, I'll slap him on the wrist and I'll send him on his way. But I, I can't kill him. There's no justified grounds for killing him. But what he sees is this crowd getting amped up. He sees they are bloodthirsty. They want Jesus dead. So he's got to do something. He gets an idea. See, see, every year there was this custom at Passover that, that, that Pilate or the governor at the time w- would perform. And it was this, Matthew 27. At the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. So this is sort of a, a way they say, you know, this is, this is the, the lame attempt of the government to keep the people happy. Like, I know we've been oppressing you. I know we've been killing you and your children for the last six decades. But here, have a crook, right? Like, this is kind of their way of what we call amnesty, to try to keep the people pacified, delivering a prisoner to them uh, once a year. And so Pilate assumes, I mean, think about our society today. We wouldn't want released a murderous sleazeball, right? We wouldn't say, give us Charles Manson back. Like, we, he says, there, there's no way that they're going to want a, a legit prisoner. So this, the people, when I release one prisoner to them, They'll want Jesus, right? The miracle worker. This great teacher that the crowds have loved for three years. They'll say, give us Jesus, and then I'll get out of this pickle. So he says, who do you want released? But the leaders have a little plot twist of their own. And look what it says in Mark 15. At this point, the leading priest stirred up the crowd to demand the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. The chief priests, they start playing this little game of telephone in the crowd. They start telling people, you know who we need to release? Not Jesus. We need to release Barabbas. Now, who's Barabbas? Well, at the time, there were a lot of people who would try to start these little mini-revolutions, these revolts against that Roman oppressive government. And then they would, try to, they would try to take back, and a lot of them would actually claim to be the Messiah or a Messiah. I've come, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to release, I'm going to save the people of Israel from Rome. And Barabbas was one of these guys. Look four verses earlier. One of the prisoners at that time was Barabbas, a revolutionary who had committed murder in an uprising. So not only was Barabbas one of these revolutionaries, one of these rebels against the crown, against Rome, against the Caesar, he had actually committed murder in that process. So here we have Barabbas, a man who has been tried and found legitimately guilty of murder and rebellion. 
And they say, we want him in the place of the Prince of Peace and the giver of life. They want the innocent to be treated as guilty, but the guilty to be treated as innocent. They say, give us Barabbas. But it goes deeper than that. And this is where it gets crazy, where you really start to see the sovereignty of God play out in this story. So Barabbas, what, what does his name mean? Barabbas, the word bar means son of. So like I am Justin Bar Scott. Justin, the son of Scott. So the word bar means son of. So he is son of, and then the word Abba, Bar Abbas, Bar Abbas, is the plural form of the word Abba. Okay, no, not dancing queen, right? Young and sweet. Uh, ooh, my hips are back. Who knew? Thank you, Lord. No, the word Abba, what does that mean? What did Jesus pray in the garden? Abba, daddy. The word Abba means father. So here's Barabbas. What does Barabbas mean? Son of the father. Son of the father. Do you see the imagery starting to come out here? And then you go, well, okay, if I'm Justin Bar Scott, it's Bar Abba. Bar Abbas, what is his first name? Well, most scholars would agree, and some of the earlier manuscripts actually had his first name. Are you ready for this? It was Yeshua, the Hebrew word Yeshua, which we translate in English, Jesus. So this man's name is Jesus Barabbas. What does the name Jesus mean? The one who saves So this man's name means son of the father who saves. So here we see on the stand, I mean, can you see the irony in this? Here's the picture from uh, the the Passion of the Christ. And you have Pilate. He's going to make this substitution. This substitution. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God, the son of the the heavenly father, Yahweh, Jehovah, is going to be taken in the place of Jesus, son of the father. One who should be killed for what he did. They say, give us the actual revolutionary. And then Pilate, he says, okay, so if we're going to give you Jesus Barabbas, then what should I do with Jesus of Nazareth? To which the people reply, he says, says, what should I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And this chilling response from the crowd, they say, let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. We want him dead. And on the day of Passover, I mean, think about this. This is their Super Bowl. This is their highest point of worship of the year. Celebrating God's redemption of their people for hundreds and hundreds of years when they should be shouting praise to their God and instead they're screaming for his death. They say, crucify him. And Pilate, to his response, he, he sees that he's gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning and he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. He sees they want their, his death. And so Pilate, it's this, this, this act, this audacious act, in the presence of the only one who's innocent, he tries to declare himself to be innocent. In the very act of killing the innocent one. But Pilate is not the one who gets to decide whether he is or is not guilty. And Pilate is guilty just like the rest of them. Without any just cause, Pilate hands Jesus over to be murdered. He says, I will not take the blame. But listen to what the people say in response to that. His blood be on us and our children. 
Pilate says, I don't want responsibility. And the people, they hauntingly say, we'll take it on us and our children. Children are like, hey, why'd you bring us into this? He says, we'll take it on us and our children. And what happens? This actually comes to fruition because over the next two generations, in 40 years from now, the temple in 70 AD, in a response to a revolt, the people go the way of Jesus Barabbas and they try to overthrow the Romans and the Romans crush them and they burn their temple down. And they kill scores and scores of people, drive away the rest of them, and the people never return to the land. Even to this day, most of the people of Israel have not returned to this land. Be careful what you wish for. So they say, we'll take the blood on him. So Pilate looks at all of this. He surveys the scene. And this is what he says. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Wishing to satisfy the crowd. What's Pilate doing here? He's looking out after numero uno, right? He's freaked out. The people are going to kill me if I don't let them kill Jesus. And Pilate says, don't come after me here. Take him. Jesus is Pilate's substitute too. He says, don't kill me, kill Jesus. And he hands him over to the people to be killed. And this is their final rejection of Jesus as their Messiah, as their king. And so when he hands him over, he says that he, he has him scourged. Now this word scourged, and I don't want to be unnecessarily graphic, but this idea was this horrific scene. You may have heard of it. There were these whips, and at the end of them, they would have these pieces of bone and iron and glass, and they'd have all sorts of different st- things in them, and, and just be ripping out hunks of flesh. There was massive blood loss at this time. Many did not even survive this stage of the execution at all. And part of the reason they did this was that it would expedite the crucifixion process, that they would die quicker. And then it says these words, remember, this is, this is prophesied, right? Isaiah 53. With his stripes, we are healed. His whipping, his beatings, we're going to be made whole, made clean. And it says next in Mark 15, they dressed him in a purple robe and they wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head. Then they saluted him and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews. They struck him on the head with a reed stick, spit on him and dropped to their knees in mock worship. They taunt the son of the living God. I want to pause here for a second on this crown of thorns. Think about where this imagery takes you. You remember back in the Garden of Eden? When, when, when Adam and Eve had sinned, they are guilty. And God says, as a result of this, your punishment, your curse for this sin, what will it be? Turn to Adam. He said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. He says you're going to curse the ground. You're going to have to work the ground. You're not just plucking tree fruit off anymore. You're going to have to work the ground. And what was part of the curse of the ground? Next verse. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. Part of the curse was the thorns of the ground. And here we have Jesus. What is being placed on his head? Thorns. Jesus is symbolically bearing the curse of Adam, the guilty one. He's placing on his head the curse of sin. 
He's, he's taking it on himself. Paul said this in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse. He brought us back. He, he delivered us from the curse. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. Jesus becomes sin for all those of us who, he became sin who knew no sin. For those of us who had sinned. By hanging on this tree and bearing on him the curse of us all, these crown of thorns represented Jesus taking our punishment, our wrath, our curse on his own head. And then we turn to the crucifixion itself. Mark 15, it says that Jesus was crucified, started at the third hour. Now, they're not, that's not 3 a.m. They're counting from sunrise, which is at 6 a.m. So the third hour is actually 9 a.m. So here's Jesus, the crucifixion process starting Friday morning at 9 a.m. And this, this crucifixion, this is the Roman, this, the Roman form of execution. This is also part of God's sovereignty because what did Jesus say about himself? The Son of Man must be lifted up. Talking about the kind of way that he would die. Lifted up on a cross. God is in control the entire time. It says in verse 24, the soldiers nailed him to a cross, which again fulfills the prophecy. In, in Psalm 22, they have pierced my hands and feet. Or Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. Now these prophecies were made hundreds of years before crucifixion was even a thing. God's saying, I know exactly when and how my son will die. And to this day, crucifixion is one of the most brutal forms of execution that man has ever devised. And then they would hang on these on their outstretched arms with their nails in their wrists. And, the, and this would cause, as they hung there, this pressure to form on their diaphragm, causing them to be completely unable to breathe. And the only way that you could draw a breath was to pull yourself up by your arms and to push yourself up by your feet, causing unimaginable pain from the nails that were in your body. And, and, and when they got so exhausted from trying to lift themselves up, most of the people on the cross, if it was not from blood loss, they would die of what's called asphyxiation, which essentially they were suffocating themselves. Part of the torture was that they were, in, in essence, killing themselves because they were no longer drawing breath, pushing themselves up to draw breath. And in this moment, in this period of time here, in Mark fifteen thirty three, it says, when the sixth hour had come, and again, we're counting from, from daybreak, so it's noon, so at noon, when the darkness had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So from noon until three, there's darkness. Now, this is the middle of the day. This is when it's supposed to be the brightest, right? And this was not a, just like an eclipse. At the Sabbath, it was always held on a full moon. So there's no way it would have been completely dark. This is from God. The light of the world is being snuffed out. And you remember back in Egypt, what happened? Before the lamb was, was killed at Passover, there were three days of darkness that covered the earth in the plague. And here, three hours of darkness cover the whole earth before the lamb of God is going to be slain. And then in verse 34, it says, At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The father turns his back on the son. Why? Because Jesus is bearing the curse of the sin of the world. And God is holy. And he can't be in the presence of sin. He can't be in a relationship with one who is sin. And the one who knew no sin bore our sin, and now God necessarily must turn away from his own son. 
And this was the horror that Jesus saw back in the garden where he said, Father, if there's any way for you to take this cup from me, this cup of your wrath that's going to be poured out on me, take it away. But if there's no other way, there's no other way, I will willingly drink it. And here on the cross, he's willingly drinking the cup of God's wrath and God turns his back on him. And this was the worst pain of it all. More than the nails, more than the whipping, more than the suffocation. It was to be abandoned by his own father. Now, I've never had a son. Never had a daughter. And I don't say it lightly. I know, I know what this means for many of us and, and those of us who have suffered loss. But I think about people with closest in my life. I think about my nephew Ray, three years old, June, two years old, and I'll tell you what, I'm a pretty protective uncle. Someone looks at him wrong. I'm like, you want to go, right? You look at her again like that, I'm going to break your face, right? Like, I'm just going to, I'm ready to drop someone if I even think they're going to mess with them. And I refuse to even let myself fully imagine to what it would be like for everything that we've just mentioned. To see one of them face this kind of torture, the whippings, the beating, the mocking, and to knowingly send them into that, to knowingly say, I'm going to send you to earth, and you're going to die, and not just be tortured in this way, but, to, but, but as you're being tortured, you're dying to save the very ones who are doing the torturing. And I don't want us to make the mistake here to think that this was not God and a lack of love for his own son. This was to show us the full force of how deep the Father's love is for us. To call us his sons and daughters, he had to willingly send his own son to suffer and die in this way. And Jesus as he's, as he's absorbing this wrath from his father, his father's back is turned from him, he utters the three greatest words that mankind has ever been able to hear. He says, it is finished. The Greek word there is tetelestai. And there were three cultural applications that the, of the use of this word at the time. And it's so cool to see how all three of these come together in Jesus. The first one means a servant would say to their master, when they had completed a task, they say, the job you've given me is completed. I did what you asked me to do, to tell us die. The job is done. The second one, this is probably the one you've heard of the most, when a financial debt was owed or there was a prison sentence owed, when the sentence had been paid, when the debt had been paid, they would say, to tell us die. They would stamp this word over the top of the sentence saying that the, what was owed has been paid in full. And then the third one here, and this is so cool, the priest, when they were in the temple and they were looking for a sacrifice, they would look at the different lambs. No, that one's messed up. That one's, ooh, that one's not good. This one, they keep moving along. When they finally found the unblemished, perfect, spotless lamb for the sacrifice, they would say, Tetelestai. I found it. I found the perfect one. 
And here's Jesus on the cross saying, Abba, I completed the work you gave me to do. The perfect, unblemished lamb has been found. And the debt of sin of the whole world has been fully paid. The prisoners can be released. You ever said a, a bedtime prayer with your children? You lay them at night. The one I've heard that you're supposed to teach your little, your little daughters is, now I laid me down to sleep. I pray for a man who's not a creep, right? That's the, that's the one. So I'm ready, I'm ready. Jesus, on the cross, the last thing he says before he dies, according to Luke, called out with a loud voice, and he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now this was actually a Jewish bedtime prayer. It's taken from Psalm 31, verse 5. And every night when a Jewish child would go to bed, they would say, Father, they're, they're sitting there talking to their earthly father, they would pray to their heavenly father and say, Father, as I go to sleep, I'm putting my spirit, I'm trusting my spirit in your hands as I sleep here peacefully. And here's Jesus on the cross. And what did he tell us? He said, come to me like little children, Right? And here he's living that out where he's entrusting his spirit to his father with childlike faith. He says, Daddy, I'm going to go to sleep now. And I trust you with my life. You've brought me to this point to suffer unimaginable torture, and to die, to have you turn your back on me. But I trust that through all this, you're saving me, not from making me not face this, but you're going to pull me through on the other side. There's going to be an empty tomb waiting for me. I trust my spirit in your hands. I believe that you're good. I believe that you're powerful. I believe that you're sovereign. Here's my spirit. And he willingly puts his spirit into the Father's hand. And it says, having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus is dead. Now, did Satan win here? Sin and death, did they, did they snuff out the, the perfect life? This is, this is not a cry of despair. This is a cry of victory. Because look at what happens. 9 a.m., Jesus is crucified. Six hours later, the ninth hour when he breathes his, left, his last, it's 3 p.m. It's 3 p.m., this is a hugely significant moment for the Jewish people in, in the Passover celebration. You see, part of what would happen, and then this is all according to plan. That's why Romans 5, 6 says these words. You see, just the right time. At just the right time. When we were still powerless, nothing we could do to save ourselves, Christ died for the ungodly, for me for you at just the right time. Now, why is this significant at this time? Well, this is the day, 3 p.m. on Friday, was the time when the priests would sacrifice the unblemished, spotless lambs for the Passover meal, the symbol of the lamb slain in the place of the firstborn in Egypt. So this temple, at 3 p.m., right at this moment, would have been packed with priests sacrificing lambs, and imagine them in this scene. We'll look at what comes next. 
And behold, this is after Jesus has breathed his last, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Imagine being a priest in the temple at this moment. And the temple, it, it, the, the curtain's torn in two. Now, now this, remember this curtain, it represents the, the veil that separates the, ho- the holy place from the holy of holies. That if you looked behind the curtain into the holy of holies, you would die. And here's God ripping this thing right in half, exposing the Holy of Holies. Priests are diving out of the way, covering their eyes. They're not allowed to look at this. And this would be no small feat to rip this curtain either. This thing was 60 feet high. It was 30 feet wide. It was the width of your hand thick and made of one, one piece of cloth. This is not something you could just, it's not like one of those weenie little uh, curtains that separates first class and the poor people on the airplane, you know? This is not one of those kind of situations. This is this massive curtain. And notice it says it was torn from top to bottom. What's the significance there? This is God making a way from him to man. This is not man working his way up to God. God says, I will make a way. And Jesus, our perfect high priest, has made a way, not through sacrificing animals, a day after day after day, but the high priest himself becomes the sacrificial lamb, and as the innocent one, dies in our place so that we, the guilty, might walk into the presence of God as though we are innocent. And the Roman centurion, like we started with, he, he sees all of this happen. And he sums it up. He says, certainly this man was innocent. Or in Mark, he says, this was the Son of God. Not just that he hadn't done anything wrong in this particular case of deserving to die, but this Roman centurion, not the Jewish people who had been given the promises for hundreds and hundreds of years, the Roman centurion, and I don't think the irony is lost on on the writer of this uh, gospel, Luke, The Roman centurion is the one who correctly identifies Jesus as the Son of God, the innocent one, dying in the place for the ungodly. And you notice this this theme woven throughout this entire story. All the people who are guilty, killing the only one who's innocent. And I was thinking about how to land the plane on this one, and I think it makes some application points. but man, what I want us to do here just to finish is to worship Jesus and, and to see him the way that God sees him. You see, Jesus, he wasn't just here giving us life. He was also showing us the way to live. Jesus is calling us to, what is he doing here? When he's being mocked and spit on and beaten, he doesn't retaliate. He's silent. And what, what he does say from the cross is he looks at these people who have been killing him, torturing him. He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He willingly lays his life down for his enemies. You and I have been called to lay our life down for others, to love even those who hate us, to be like Jesus. Jesus is our life, and he's our example of how to live. And what I want us to do here is I want us just to to consider Jesus from the Father's perspective, which is always the right perspective. And I'm sneaking in another worship song here. We're going we're gonna to sing together how deep the Father's love. If you just stand with me, we'll, we'll sing a cappella here.